Hello and welcome to Author in Your Classroom from Plazoon. My name is Helen Mully and the author joining me in your classroom or wherever you're listening for this episode is the writer behind an impressive list of books, including several for young adults as well as many for younger readers. In fact, one of his novels for teens, Heroic, has been chosen for this year's Remembrance Book Club, developed by the National Literacy Trust in partnership with the Royal British Legion and featuring oodles of resources for Key Stage 2 and Key Stage 3. We'll talk about that a little later on, but for our chat today, we're going to focus on another of his books that also explores the subject of war with stunning writing that's perfect for children in Key Stage 2. Welcome to the podcast, Phil Earle. Well, th- thank you very much for having me. <laughs> it's absolutely our pleasure. Phil, I mentioned already that you write for young adults as well as children the same age as most of our listeners. And I think you have something in common with one of our previous Author in Your Classroom guests, Jacqueline Wilson, in that people often describe your books as gritty and dealing with issues. Is that something you recognise? I, I think gritty, definitely. I think that's that's kind of just, uh, I think it's been brought up in the North, I think. You know, it's, uh, it, it's bred into you from a very early age, you know, that life is unbearably tough. And uh, uh, no, I don't know, really. I mean, the issue thing, I kind of often get a bit of a bee in my bonnet about that because it's like for me, I don't think there's been a book written uh, in the history of books that isn't an issue book. And you're right in that it's certainly something that's thrown at, at, at Jacqueline Wilson a lot, you know, that she writes issue books. But I think every book is an issue book. A book that wasn't an issue book would be no pages long and it would just be a blank page. You know, it's um, you have to tackle issues if you're going to tell a story. And I think first and foremost, what what I love doing more than anything is is, is that, is, is telling a story, entertaining myself as well as the readers. I think that's true. I, I think, yes, if, if a book isn't about something, then then what what is it? I think it's fair to say that your route to becoming a published author, it wasn't exactly a, a conventional one, was it? I mean, you weren't the kind of kids who, who started writing books at the age of six and, and grew up in the library, were you? No, absolutely not. I mean, um, I actually grew up thinking I wasn't a reader, if I'm honest. Uh, I mean, you know, it was a different time then. I I grew up, I started school in, oh gosh, it would have been like 1979 when I started uh, school, when the T-Rex was still walking the earth. And uh, <laughs> teachers saw reading really differently uh, then to now. You know, for, for me, when I was a kid, I was told if you're a reader, Phil, you've got to be reading books that are... 300 pages long, they have no illustrations in them and preferably they should have been written before 1930. You know, you've got to be reading the classics. And I just couldn't do it. I didn't have the imagination. I didn't have the confidence. I didn't have the staying power. But I was a reader in the, for me, it was all about comics growing up. Every Monday in our house, there was the most almighty scrap. Oh, oh, well, kind of. In the, uh, me and my older brother used to fight over Roy of the Rovers comic, which um, has made a bit of a comeback recently. But back then it was a 32-page weekly comic just with stories about football. And for me it was heaven sent because I was, I was nuts about footy and still am. 
But, uh, you know, it broke up the text. It was words and pictures together on the page, you know, in, in that sort of graphic novel, sort of cartoon style. And so what I learned about stories, I didn't learn from Dickens or Shakespeare or, or one of the great writers of, you know, of great literature. I learned it from, from Roy Race and from Daredevil and from Batman and, and the Hulk, you know. But it taught me a lot at the same time. So, yeah, I, I, I didn't really consider myself a reader of novels until I, I got a job in a bookshop. I got a job in a bookshop when I was 26 and they made me run the kids department and the woman that ran that department gave me a book and said, right, read this and if you like it, you can shove it in the hands of the, of the young people that come in the shop. And she gave me a copy of Holes by Lewis Sacker. Oh, yeah. And it literally changed my life. It, it completely changed the path that I was on because all of a sudden there was a book that I could, there was a novel that I could get on board with. It excited me. Uh, it was only 200 pages long, but it covered you know, 250 years of history and it was a drama and a comedy and a Western and a crime book and a murder book and a mystery book and it had like these lizards in it and when those lizards bite you, they, they inject you with a deadly venom. It had everything. <laughs> and that was it, mate. You know, for me, that was the minute. You know, you have those moments in your life that, that, that are sort of seismic. Yeah. And, and, and that, was, that was the moment for me. That, that was the one that made me a, a reader, but also it spurred me on to try and see if I could do it myself and write write a book for young people. I mean, it sounds like it was a, a tough act to follow, both in terms of <laughs> what book you read next, but absolutely in terms of what book you might write. Wow. Yeah, it felt like the greatest gift, really, in that, you know, I was working in a bookshop and they were brilliant. The bookshop I worked for, they'd let me borrow stuff. They'd let me take it home and, and read it, as long as I didn't turn the pages down to bookmark it or break the spine. <laughs> so for the next two years, I borrowed everything. You know, I borrowed everything I could get my hands on for, for young people, you know, Snicket and Jackie Wilson and David Almond and Keith Gray and, you know, Anthony McGowan, you know, all these writers that became my heroes very quickly, really. That's great, because those are the writers that, that I think the young people listening to the podcast today, they'll be getting to know them, too. And so they'll be having the same kind of journey that, that you are. And, and it may be that they aren't enjoying them perhaps as much as they think they should do right now but your story tells them but that doesn't necessarily matter you know it might come later it you know it might come with a different kind of book it's it's all reading I think it's it's realising that there are many different kinds of reading. Yes. You know, we're all readers. We have to be. You can't get through a day in life without reading something, even if it's a menu in McDonald's, you know. But uh, <laughs> it's like, you know, if you're going home and all you're doing is looking at the BBC website or the Guardian website for last night's football reports from the Champions League, or if you're reading a review of the new Bond film, that's reading. You're still immersing yourself in in a story a football match report is still telling you a story it's telling you the story of that match so it's it, it's about acknowledging and recognizing that that there's no wrong way of reading the only the only thing there is is is, is for reading the right way is reading for pleasure for me there is no other type of reading it has to be about pleasure Completely. so you know you don't even have to read with your eyes for goodness sake you know you can read with your ears you know there are so many ways that you can download stories now whether it's through you know borrow box at your library or via you know audible or various other apps you know you can there's no story you can't listen to that's still reading and there are stories everywhere aren't there do you still enjoy comics or I suppose we should call them graphic novels now that we're grown ups? <laughs> uh, yes, I do. I still, I mean, I'm 40, I'm 47 next month and 
I, I, I do read adult stuff, but I'm very choosy. I'm not, I, I still class myself as a reluctant reader. I struggle, you know, I, give me Ian McEwan or, or, you know, stuff that generally is on the Booker Prize, you know, shortlist this big sort of books for very intelligent people. I'd struggle. So I still read an awful lot of graphic novels. Superhero stuff still does it for me. You know, I, I also collect Roy the Rovers. So, you know, I've got, I've got like back issues. I've got a whole year's worth of 98 from 1981, which was exactly when I was into it. Wow. So, yeah, it's still, it's still about reading for pleasure. It's still about reading for fun. Phil, you may have been a late starter by some authors standards but you're certainly making up for any lost time aren't you on top of five young adult novels I think you've now published is it 15 books for younger readers it's yeah oh yeah it is 15 for younger and five for young adults yeah it's 20 20 books this year which is 10 years this year since I was first published so yeah 20 20 books in 10 years that's prolific by anyone's standards and if anyone listening needs to look up that word it's 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 a very useful one um and that includes two books just this year which frankly sounds a bit like showing off to me oh i can do you know what it's actually five books this year (laughs) that's ridiculous it was meant to be two and then uh and then um the covid virus came along and it it shuffled like three others onto this year so between january and june this year i had five books out which is just ridiculous (laughs) isn't it but fun, you know? Yeah, but also wonderful. And and one of those is the book I'd like us to talk a little bit more about today. It's called When the Sky Falls. I read it very recently and honestly, it's incredible. It's got a story that kept me gripped. It's got characters who wriggled their way into my heart and soul and wouldn't go away. And writing that actually made me cry. And I love it when a book makes me cry. Me too. And on the cover, it says, inspired by a true story. Now, I would like to know a little bit more about that, please. Yeah, happily. It is inspired by a true story. Um, In the, uh, you actually said it yourself a couple of minutes ago. You said that we're surrounded by stories. And it's almost like my sort of catchphrase that when I'm in school, because I, I genuinely believe that, you know, that the simplest thing in life, the simplest interaction can become the start of a, a great story, uh, a great adventure. And about seven or eight years ago now, I was on holiday with my with my family, uh, with my uh, father-in-law, a gentleman called Pete, who at the time was kind of mid-70s. And so he'd grown up through the Second World War uh, and he grew up in Manchester with his family and his dad wasn't able to fight because he had asthma. So he was declared uh, unfit. And as a result, he was part of Manchester's Home Guard. And every time... The air raid siren rang in Manchester during the Blitz. He had one job, and that job was to grab a rifle and leg it as fast as he could to Bellevue Zoo in Manchester. No matter what the weather was like, and bearing in mind Manchester, it rains pretty much most (laughs) of the time, he had to sit there all night until the siren went off again with with this rifle trained between the, the bars of the lion's cage. Why? Because if the Luftwaffe, which was the German Air Force, if they were to drop a bomb that landed on the zoo and it knocked out the wall to the lion's cage, Pete's dad's job was to shoot the lion before it went on the rampage and killed anybody. For me, that moment when a story presents itself is is one of the single 
most exciting things about writing because for me it's like there's a word that's that's visceral and it kind of means that you feel it in your body and it's 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 tense it's in you you just it's like electricity passing through you and your heart your hairs on your arms stand up and you get prickly sensations on the back of your neck and at, at that moment I knew there was a story in that you know loads of people have written about Dunkirk or Pearl Harbor or those huge moments of in history in World War Two, but it's brilliant as far as I'm concerned if you can find those stories back at home that might sound small but actually are, are pretty massive. So it, that that was the starting point. It just made me ask that one question that, as a writer, I think it's the only question you ever have to ask, which is what if, and in this <laughs> case, it was what if that rifle ended up in the hands of an angry 12-year-old boy instead of a responsible adult. And what if the animal inside the cage wasn't a lion anymore? What if it was an animal that a boy, that angry boy, could have forged a relationship, a friendship with? What if it was a, a silverback gorilla instead? So that's, you know, that was the starting point. Okay, well, I think at this point it would be fantastic if you could read to our listeners from When the Sky Falls and then we can carry on talking about it, but they'll have heard a taste of the story. So I'm going to pause the recording for a moment while you find the right page and then we'll be back for a taste of top-notch storytelling. Welcome back to this episode of Author in Your Classroom from Plazoom with Phil Earle, author of When the Sky Falls. Phil, you're going to read an extract from the book now. I wonder if you'd mind explaining to our listeners just a little bit about where we are in the story at this point, because it's quite a dramatic moment, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So this is this is sort of eight chapters in. And Joseph uh, is a 12-year-old boy. His behaviour is so bad that he, he's been sent almost against the tide, really, in that during the Blitz, during the Second World War, something like a million and a half children uh, were sent from the city to the countryside to live because it wasn't safe for them to live in the city anymore. Whereas I thought, wouldn't it be rather fun to sort of flip that on its head and have one boy whose behaviour is so blooming awful and unruly that his grand can't cope with him anymore. So she sends him to the city to live where the bombs are falling. And he's sent to live with Mrs F, who is a middle-aged woman who doesn't seem to like children or indeed anything very much. Apart from one animal, Mrs F runs the zoo, the city's zoo. And the zoo is pretty much decimated really by the war and that a lot of the animals that were have either been shipped out to the countryside for their own sake or put to sleep because believe it or not a lot of animals were put to put to sleep at the start of the war because the government didn't think it was going to be safe for them something like three quarters of a million animals were killed in our country in one month at the start of world war ii Anyway, uh, Mrs. F runs the zoo. One of the animals that's left is is a very grumpy old silverback gorilla called Adonis. And Adonis seems to be pretty much the only thing in life that Mrs. F cares for. Uh, so it takes Joseph very much by surprise one night when there is an air raid to follow her to the zoo to find Mrs. F sat outside Adonis's cage as the bombs are falling with a rifle pointed at her most prized possession. 
And this is what happened next. Not much shocked Joseph these days, but this didn't make any kind of sense. What on earth was she doing? The first time he'd seen her in front of this cage, she'd calmed the animal in a way that he hadn't known was possible. The time after that, she'd been inside the bars with nothing to protect her. It'd been like she'd understood what the animal needed. No, more than that, he thought, as if she loved the beast. So why was she now looking like she was ready to end its life just as easily? Mrs. F, he gasped, voice fighting with another explosion off in the distance. The woman's eyes flitted skywards, gauging if the German bomber above was any closer than the last. Her focus spun back to the cage as Adonis dashed, panicked from the shadows. Instantly, the barrel trained back to the animal, the rifle tight under her chin, the strain visible on her face and arms. Adonis made his displeasure felt louder, angrier. Joseph wondered if it was because the ape had spotted him, an even less welcome guest than a Nazi bomb. But as the tension and confusion built to breaking point, they were suddenly shattered, as from nowhere bounded Tweedy, which is Mrs F's dog, rearing up at his mistress, pulling her focus from the cage. What the hell are you doing here, she said, pushing the dog down while swinging the rifle strap over her shoulder. Her eyes swept the surroundings, narrowing when she saw Joseph only yards away. I might have known she boomed. Can you not do anything, I ask? He wanted to fight back, to tell her this was the last place he wanted to be, that he'd simply chased her stupid dog here. But at the same time, he wanted to know why she had a rifle and why she had it pointed at Adonis. But he didn't get a chance to ask anything because Mrs F's attention was pulled away by yet another blast. It still wasn't close, but it brought on a din from all corners of the zoo and galvanised her into action. With me, now, she yelled, pushing Tweedy in his direction. Joseph didn't move, so she shoved him on. She was much stronger than she had any right to be. Where are we going? he protested. The aquarium. There's a trapdoor to the cellar. You will get down there and you will not move until the siren tells you to. Understood? He didn't want to do what she said but felt powerless against her speed and strength. It was like being whisked up by a tornado, and by the time he could really resist, he was descending a dark set of stairs, the dog whimpering at his feet. Trip me up, I dare you, he spat at it, as the door slammed shut, throwing him into darkness. It was just the two of them. Mrs F was still above ground with a rifle doing God knows what. It was no warmer down here than it was in the open air, just damper. Plus it smelt appalling, like all the fish from the aquarium had been dumped there to rot. Joseph did the only thing he could. He sat on the damp bottom step, tensing as the dog pushed into him for warmth and waited for the siren to sound the all clear. Oh, wow. (laughs) I really hope that everyone hearing that is now desperate to read the whole book because it really is that powerful and compelling from start to finish. Thank you. Well, it's so incredibly atmospheric. How did you manage to put yourself in the shoes of a of a young boy like Joseph in a situation that's so far from anything 
well, you or I, thankfully, have ever experienced. Yeah, it, it, it's true. I mean, his, the setting and the, the time period is, and, and sh- I think, you know, that's simply the, the job of the author, isn't it? It's to, it's to kind of, uh, to apply whatever imagination you might have to, to make that world come to life. I mean, I, 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 it's really funny. I grew up, and my dad always used to say about himself, he always used to say, oh, I've got no imagination, Phil, terrible. And I kind of feel the same, you know, I've, I've, I've never written a fantasy book. I've never created alternative worlds. You know, I, I feel like my books are always going to be rooted uh, in the world as we know it, I guess. But it, it, yeah, it, it was exciting and scary and it, it took some work. Again, you know, in terms of uh, reading, I really struggled to read books about the world, about World War Two. You know, I, I, again, my confidence is so low with reading that if you'd give me a 500 page sort of adult history book about the war I would have struggled so I I went back to things that I love I went back to film and I went back to documentaries and I I used uh I used Google images a lot as well I just typed in things like the Blitz London and children Blitz and and found as many images as that I could that moved me and printed them off cut them up and and stuck them around my screen in, in, in my shed. And so every time I sat down to write, it, it was kind of like being surrounded. It was like stepping into World War II without sounding daft. You know, I was trying to surround myself with as much of that as possible. I think that's really important because our listeners will so often be told or asked by by their teachers or, or other adults, right, go off and do your research. You need to research about this and, and then you can write about it. And we tend to assume that means, well, going off and, and reading lots of big important books or, or lots of articles on the internet or, or newspapers. But of course, watching films, looking at pictures, finding posters, that's all research too. And that, that can put you in a, in a time and a place and a situation that you can then write about. You know, research or, or writing or, or reading, it's about finding the stories that work for you. You know, as I said earlier, there are so many different ways in which we can read. You know, you can read in a very visual style. You know, it can be all about the illustration for you. And that is just as valid, just as good a reading as reading words can't stress that enough. Definitely. Very important. The word I used um, when I was trying to describe when the sky falls to someone was sustained, which is another useful word, I think. And I, I, I just want to read the first sentence of the book because I think it's incredible. Okay. So listeners, the platform was a battlefield. 70 yards of carnage transplanted straight from the coasts of northern France. And in that sentence, you've, you've got the whole thing. You've, you've got where Joseph is now on the busy urban railway station. You've got the, the war looming in France and the platform was a battlefield. That's, that's brilliant. This might be a silly question, but can you remember how it felt to write that sentence? Uh, yeah, I can. I can. Uh, I mean, interestingly enough, Helen, uh, that was originally that wasn't the first line in that there was initially a, a prologue to the book. And a prologue is like an, a short opening chapter that, that tries to intrigue or set the scene. And, and initially the, the, the first words were, were a scene from the end of the book. It was um, that that Joseph was 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 in the zoo at the zoo and the bombs were falling. I wanted the reader to um, 
to be launched straight into it. So, so th- and, and the chapter, or the prologue rather, ended when the bomb went off and Joseph was blown off his feet unconscious. And I was convinced this was the right way to start the book. This was dramatic and it was <laughs> so Steven Spielberg and, you know, all this uh, stuff. And my editor simply came back and said, well, that's a load of tosh. You need to just uh, get rid of that, Phil. Save it up. So, so yeah, so chapter two became chapter one. But yeah, that 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 line did did come quickly, uh, as you mentioned earlier in your intro. I wrote a book called Heroic for older readers, and when I was writing Heroic, I wanted it to be about the fact that wars happen at home as well. Do you know what I mean? That of course battles happen on battlefields and they happen, you know, in the air, but they also happen at home for the people that are left behind. So I wanted to draw that comparison immediately that war was still going on at home it wasn't just war for the for the brave soldiers that were that were marching across europe yeah that sentence does exactly that just it's just wonderful and and then the it, the story just continues there's there's 304 odd pages of of, of this level of, of writing was there a lot of editing and and redrafting in the process because it's such a tight a tight book yeah, there was. There was an awful lot. I've been very lucky on, on this book and on the book that's coming next to work with a lady called Charlie, who's my editor. And she's brilliant, is Charlie. Uh, she's, she's, she's a northerner like me, which always helps, I think, me. I, 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 you know, I feel like we, can, we share a lot of the same sort of senses of humour and things. But she told me very clearly at the, at the end of the first time I'd read the book, she sent me, uh, sorry, written the book, she sent me an email that said, this is good. But she said, if you're prepared to bend your back now, Phil, and put in the work... I promise you that at the moment I'm stood at the top of the mountain and I can I can see what it looks like. And if you're prepared to climb up that mountain and do the work, the view up here is is lovely. And that was enough for me. That was like, right, OK, I need to bend my back. And so I did. And, and we worked for a long time on it. I think I probably rewrote it four or five times, you know, not not completely. But, you know, Charlie was really good at saying, OK, this time when you're editing it, I want you to think about the sort of historical facts. I want you to imagine you're, you're smearing a piece of bread with butter. This time the butter is really all about, okay, historical facts and bits about World War II. And so, you know, we, 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 it sounds like a bit of a rubbish analogy, that, but it was like... Uh, it was like layers adding layers like creating a really big multi-story sandwich and and you know then the next layer is historical fact the next layer is i want more about joseph's background the next layer is i want to know more about mrs f or adonis and bit by bit we created a world hopefully that that felt believable It, it did to me I wonder if Charlie should do school visits as well. To be honest, oh, it sounds like that kind of coaching would go down really well. She's like a teacher, you know, it's like, you know, when there's nothing better, but also worse when you're a student, you're giving your homework that you're really proud of and you get it back covered in red pen. I mean, that's exactly <laughs> what it's like when you get your edit back, you know. Phil, we are getting towards the end of our time together today. There's so much more I'd like to ask you. Um, But before I do, I am going to take this opportunity to remind all the teachers and parents listening that we do produce a special resources pack to go with every episode of Author in Your Classroom so children can take the advice they hear and put it into action in their own writing. You can download all the packs from plazoom.com and details are in the episode notes. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, the Remembrance Book Club which is 
put together by the National Literacy Trust along with the Royal British Legion has also got plenty of resources based around Remembrance Day with novels for Key Stage 2 and Key Stage 3. So do take a look at that as well. And again, the details will be in the episode notes. So, Phil, I am going to pause the recording once more to give everyone a chance to write all of that down and then we'll be back to talk a little more. Welcome back to Author in Your Classroom from Plazoon with today's very special guest, Phil Earle. Phil, I mentioned earlier that your young adult novel, Heroic, has been chosen for this year's Remembrance Book Club with the National Literacy Trust and the Royal British Legion. As you said earlier, Heroic looks at the impact of the war in Afghanistan on a pair of British brothers and When the Sky Falls is set during World War II. And you've written, I think, at least one other book with a a background of battlefields. Why is it, do you think, that war is a topic that writers so often find themselves drawn to and filmmakers and artists of all kinds. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, there, there are so many examples across books and, and films and documentaries. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I don't have a definitive answer. I, I know for me that I've always had the same response to war ever since I was a little kid, which was that of fear. <laughs> I was always terrified by the notion of it i remember when i was a kid there used to be these programs on the telly back in the 1980s where they were like documentaries about recruits going into the army and i used to watch them but they terrified me literally terrified me that that idea of being shouted at like that by a sergeant major and made to shave your head and made to march for eight hours a day until you fell on your backside because you were that tired i think it's also a thing about growing up in the 80s you know for the students listening the 80s you know there was it felt to me anyway like there was a real threat of of nuclear war you know you had people you presidents in america and presidents in russia sat in their offices with with their finger poised over the button that would launch a nuclear weapon that could destroy the world and that's the that's huge i mean you can't get any bigger and scarier than that and a lot of the time i write because i want to make sense of things i write because i want to understand why i feel a certain way i think and so you know what must it have been like to be 12 years old and, and grow up with bombs falling around you. Writing it down is, is a way of working it out, I guess. Empathy, I guess. It's, it's all about empathy, trying to understand how other people might feel. Phil, do you think you become a better writer with every new book? Oh, that's a really good question. Uh, I mean, I think you hope so. Do you know what I mean? I mean, get, get, getting published is a thrill and it's an honour and, and it's hard you know, I was writing for eight or nine years before my writing was anything like good enough to, to be published. But, you know, publishing, getting your book published is also a business, you know, as in the people that publish your book, they want it to sell and they want it to make money for, for them and for you. And so often it's very difficult to keep being published if your first or second or third books don't sell very well. And I think the advice I always give is, is you've just got to stick at it. You know, and I often give a football analogy, which is that, you know, Lionel Messi wasn't born with those skills. 
he was born with decent skills, but then he practiced every day of his life. He practiced and he practiced for hours and he practiced more and longer than anyone else who's probably played the game. And that's why you become better at it. And so I would really hope that the same applies to me in that uh, I've worked at it long enough and hard enough to, to, to really hope that I am improving. I think it also depends on the story. I think, you know, I feel very lucky that the story for when the sky fall, uh, falls landed on my lap, you know, it was the most brilliant coincidence. You need a good story. You can be the best writer in the world, but if you haven't got a great story to tell, then it's still going to be pretty dull. <laughs> True. We really are running out of time now. I, I was going to ask you for any piece of advice that you had for children who might be struggling with their writing I, I think you've you've done that now so I'm going to flip it around a little bit if that's okay and ask if there's any one piece of advice that you've been given as a writer that you think has has shaped you more than any other yeah definitely I think one of the the best pieces of advice was about around around your your central character or indeed any any character really, in that you've got to love them, right? Because if you're going to write about a character and if you're going to write a 300-page book, for example, you're going to be spending an awful lot of time in the company of that character. You know, you're going to be spending more time with them than you would your own best mate or your dog or your mum or whoever. And so you've got to love them, but you've also got to do the most atrocious things to them. If they're like, imagine they're a wet towel, right? You've got to wring <laughs> every single bit of drama out of them as you possibly can. Imagine that you've got it in your hands and you're wringing it like you would a wet towel. That, that's, it sounds like a daft comparison, but it's true because the only way that your reader is going to fall in love with your hero or heroine is by you being awful to them. Put them through the mangle, wring out every bit of drama from their life that, that, as, as you possibly can. I mean, look at Harry Potter. Look at what J.K. Rowling did. You know, poor old Harry gets more bumps and bruises and gets knocked to his to his bum more times than any character you could meet. But what he does is he gets up, he gets up and he goes again. And that's what makes you as a reader fall in love with a character. So love them, but be awful to them. <laughs> and on that note. <laughs> It is about time for me to wrap it up. Phil, thank you so much. It's It's been a pleasure and a joy speaking with you today. And truly, thank you for When the Sky Falls, which was such an amazing reading experience for me. And I cannot recommend it enough to everyone who's listening. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much. And we'll be back soon with another brilliant author our listeners can welcome into their classroom. In the meantime, happy reading, happy writing, and don't forget your local library. Author in Your Classroom is brought to you by Plazoom, where we are passionate about making great literacy lessons easy with inspiring, ready-to-go resources created by teachers to cover the whole of the primary curriculum. So, whether you're a teacher desperate for SATS revision that pupils will actually enjoy, a parent just as baffled by fronted adverbials as your child, or anyone looking for fun ways to keep children reading and writing during the summer holidays, we've got hundreds of brilliant ideas to explore. Take a look for yourself at plazoom.com where you can sign up to our newsletter and be the first to find out about our special offers and the new resources that are added to the site every single week. Every episode of Author in Your Classroom is packed with writing advice and inspiration from some of the world's best-loved children's writers. 
plus there are free activities and worksheets based on each author's work to spark children's imagination on Plazoom.com. Just check the episode notes for links and more. You can subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. We want to reach as many pupils in as many classrooms as possible. So please do give us a rating or a review, but above all, tell your colleagues about us and help spread the word. We know that a love of reading opens doors, not just to success at school and beyond, but to a lifetime of excitement, adventure and discovery. Let us help you make it happen with Author in Your Classroom and Plazoom.